Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Good, all right. Um, I'm really grateful to be here with you all this morning, um, even if virtually, and to be continuing um, this new series that we've started on Easter called Resurrecting Hope. And so today I'm gonna to be talking about hope in the midst of uncertainty. Um, as Leah mentioned on Easter, in early March, we had our first Haven teaching team meeting. This is before the shutdown um, had started in any way. And in that meeting, we brought up different topics that we'd be interested in exploring together as a Haven community. Um, what felt relevant for us to teach on and explore in this year 2020. And in that meeting, I brought up how the topic of hope um, had been on my mind a lot lately. And I would be interested in exploring that together. And we had a great conversation about it. And then I left and I continued on with my week. Um, and then five days later, I got 101 degree fever. Um, I was walking home from downtown Berkeley and I started getting body chills and I struggled to walk up the hill to get back up into my apartment building. At first I thought it was just really uh, ironic, bad timing, um, but then the symptoms continued. And a couple days later, I woke up with shortness of breath and my cough had gotten worse. This was the same day that California's shelter-in-place order started. So I decided it was time to call an advice nurse. <laughs> and I described my symptoms over the phone when I was finally able to get through. Um, and they agreed that my symptoms matched um, what they were hearing about and seeing about mild cases of the coronavirus. Um, but I also found out that I would not be able to get tested because I was young, otherwise healthy, and had mild symptoms, I was very low on the triage priority. Um, it was difficult, but I understood the reasons why. And so instead, I was ordered to quarantine at home for the next 14 days. Some of you who were on Slack and supporting me in this time may remember some of my messages and updates to the community. Um, and thankfully, I did recover at home. Overall, I was sick for about 12 days. Um, but in the time that I was sick, it was a time that was filled with a lot of doubt um, and uncertainty, um, wondering what would happen to me if I did get pneumonia and I needed to see a doctor, um, wondering if a doctor would take me seriously, how sick I would have to be, um, being young, otherwise healthy, and on Medicaid. And it was scary um, knowing that there would be no real treatment for me if things did get worse and that I was basically relying on my own immune system. And suddenly trying to talk about hope felt uh, way too close to home. Um, because I'd been ready to talk about hope from a safe intellectual distance when I brought it up in that meeting. Um, a distance often afforded by my own everyday privileges. But then things changed very quickly, as all of us know. Um, and the topic of hope became difficult. But I think also all the more important. See, there's a reason why even before our world was transformed by pandemic, that the topic of hope uh, had been on my mind a lot. What I had come to realize over time is that how we imagine God impacts how we experience hope. Um, and in the evangelical faith that I grew up with, hope came from feeling certainty in God. 
Hope was a triumphant sort of thing, that just as Jesus conquered the grave, God now controls and conquers every difficult and anxiety-producing situation. Um, God knows exactly how all this is going to work out. We can feel certain because God is certain. God has a plan and a hand in this. Perhaps some of this language sounds familiar to some of us. Um, a very triumphant, confident, clear image of God where there's always control and a plan leads to a certain kind of experience of hope. But what about when you have a lot of doubts and questions about how God is present to the world? Over the past few years, I've become far less certain. Um, I wrestled with a lot of doubts and questions and I've been on a journey of learning to relate to a God who is much more mysterious than I had ever let myself imagine. And what I've learned and heard from being a part of this beautiful Haven community for these past few months is that a lot of us have been on spiritual journeys of doubt and questioning, um, deconstructing, breaking open, trying to heal and to imagine differently. And so how do we experience hope when we imagine a God who is mysterious? and far less certain to us. When our feelings of uncertainty and powerlessness in difficult situations linger, what does spiritual hope look like in profoundly uncertain and difficult times? When the number of COVID-19 cases keeps increasing, um, when the number of people who are unemployed is at a record high, when kids can't go to school, when those who are already marginalized by systems of oppression are now the least protected and the most at risk. When healthcare workers are struggling, when government leaders are putting more lives at risk with their decisions, um, and when people are physically isolated from their loved ones. In these difficult and uncertain times, I think we're actually drawn closer to the strange and disorienting hope of the time of the early church after Easter. A couple weeks ago, Leah talked about the strangeness of resurrection and how disorienting it was for Jesus' followers. The impossible had become possible, and yet scars still remained. There was this sense that something radical and transformative had changed and begun. It was something that gave them profound hope, but it also wasn't finished yet. It was still unfolding. The presence and memory of Jesus was still there among his followers. They felt compelled to continue on. And so that's where we're picking up today with our story in the New Testament. So early in the book of Acts, we learn about how this strange, uncertain hope keeps unfolding after the resurrection. And we get this story involving two of Jesus's followers, Peter and John, as they walked toward the temple one afternoon. And so will you join me in following along as I read from chapter three of Acts, starting with verse one. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time for prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried up, who was placed at the temple gate called the beautiful gate every day so he could beg for money from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money. Peter looked directly at him, as did John, and said, look at us. So the lame man paid attention to them 
expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. Then Peter took hold of him by the right hand and raised him up. And at once the man's feet and ankles were made strong. He jumped up, stood, and began walking around. And he entered the temple courts with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the man who used to sit and ask for donations at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with astonishment and amazement at what had happened to him. All right, so a couple of things as we explore this story together. The first is that it's important for us to connect with the reality of this man's situation. But also second, it's important for us to realize that there's more going on in this story beneath the surface. But let's start with the first. Um, so Peter and John are on their way to the temple. They're still in Jerusalem. And the temple is the center of cultural and religious life for the whole city and also for the entire region. And it's not just one building. It's this whole huge complex with different entrances and courtyards and big rooms and different spaces. Remember, Peter and John are Jesus followers, but they're also still culturally and religiously Jewish. There isn't a separate distinction between the two communities at this point. So they're walking up to the temple complex to pray and they approach one of the entrances, this big, beautiful gate. And there's this man with a physical disability sitting at the gate, perhaps off to the side, leaning near the gate structure. And he sits there every day asking for money. And we don't know exactly how long he's been doing this for, um, but probably a long time. This was a part of the cultural system, and this is what he had to depend on to get by. There wasn't any kind of legal or societal support in place for him. And so he had to rely on individual charity from religious obligation. And that's what he did at the gate. So some people in the community help bring him to the gate each day. They help him get there, right? But they don't carry him inside the temple complex with him. They provide support, but they maintain the status quo. And so the man at the gate knows deep down what is possible for him and what he can hope for in this context. He'll be outside of the temple at the gate and he'll get some donations of money from people who see him for a moment and then pass on into the temple grounds. They'll enter the temple. They'll participate in the public life of the community while he remains outside at the gate. He's gotten used to avoiding eye contact, perhaps to avoid how people look at him. He's realistic and resigned about what feels possible for him within the status quo. And then Peter and John approach these two apostles on their way to the temple to pray. They see the man at the gate and they don't ignore him or pass him by. They stop. And Peter says, look at us. And in this moment, something starts to shift. Peter starts to challenge the boundaries of what is accepted and what is possible. Now the man doesn't register it at first, understandably. He looks up, still expecting for Peter and John to give him some money and then continue on, just like everybody else does. 
But instead, Peter says, I don't have any money. I'm going to give you something else instead. It's important for us to connect with the man at the gate's reality. But it's also important for us to realize there's more going on beneath the surface in this story. So the man at the gate looks at them, and then Peter speaks in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Why does he speak in the name of Jesus? What does that do? What difference does that make? Um, perhaps you've heard the expression before, there's power in the name of Jesus. But I think that expression is often misunderstood. For the apostles, the name of Jesus is an invocation, not an incantation. I'll say that again. For the apostles, the name of Jesus is an invocation, not an incantation. The name of Jesus isn't a spell, um, like the speaking of his name makes something immediate and tangible happen directly in response to the sound of his name. It's not an incantation, it's not a spell. For these apostles and for the man at the gate, the name of Jesus invokes something. It invokes radical, transformative possibility. The same sort of possibility that Jesus embodied in his life, death, and resurrection. He challenged the permanence of an unjust status quo and pointed to the possibility of a different, more just world. And that's what's being invoked for the man at the gate. The name of Jesus here invokes possibility. And so Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. And in the next verse, it says that Peter raised him up. Now, there's a really important play on words here that mostly disappears in translation. These two different phrases, one translated stand up and walk, and the other translated as raised, they're the same verb in the original language of this text. And the verb doesn't just mean to stand up, to get up in the literal sense. It's a much more flexible and ambiguous verb that bears multiple possible meanings. So this verb shows up several times in the New Testament when people arise from sleep. It's also used to describe a metaphorical posture of action, like nation will rise up against nation. And most revealing, it's also used to describe being raised from the dead. Like in the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke, when the disciples exclaim, the Lord has risen indeed, it's the same verb. This is resurrection language. And the story of the man at the gate reveals itself as a resurrection story and its wordplay. Now, we don't know if the man also literally physically got up and walked, but I don't think that's the main point of this healing story. It's much more symbolic than that, which ancient storytellers were so good at and which we oftentimes really struggle with. The man at the gate experienced a resurrecting hope, okay? He who was once an outsider at the gate now belonged in the temple of God. The name and life and legacy of Jesus invoked new possibilities that transformed him. And it doesn't just stop with him, right? The last verse then in that part of the story says that they, those who were visiting the temple, were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The story doesn't just end with the one man at the gate. Others are impacted 
by bearing witness to this transformation of spirit, this healing that he has experienced. And so the story actually continues on for the next couple of chapters in the book of Acts. We're not gonna read through all of it because it's quite long. Um, we'll pick up midway through the fourth chapter. But what happens right after this particular moment, when they're all amazed and standing in the temple, is that Peter gives a speech to the people who are standing there. We're looking around and saying, hey, he's that guy who used to be on the outside for so long. Something's happened to him. This is amazing. We can't look away from it. Peter addresses those people. He gives this speech where he professes his faith in the name of Jesus and in the power of that name, the power of the possibility that's in that name, despite the execution, the crucifixion that tried to stop it and that failed because Jesus resurrected. And so after Peter gives this speech, those who are in positions of power and influence feel threatened by what is happening. The temple, right, is the center of cultural and religious life. But remember, the whole region is also under Roman occupation. And so there are local powerful leaders in Jerusalem who keep their own protection and prosperity by collaborating and cooperating with Rome. They keep the peace even though it's oppressive, and they maintain the status quo. These are the leaders that feel threatened by what is happening in the temple. And so they arrest Peter and John, and they bring them to trial the next day. And they demand to know, quote, by what power or by what name did you do this? See, they recognize how this hope is transforming the people and is a threat to the status quo that they're trying to maintain. Hope in new possibilities is dangerous to them. And so when we pick up, they've been having this trial, and now it's time for the council to deliberate. So follow along with me as we start with Acts chapter 4, verse 15 now. It says, when they had ordered them, Peter and John, to go outside, the council began to confer with one another, saying, what should we do with these men? For it is plain to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable miraculous sign has come about through them, and we cannot deny it. But to keep this matter from spreading any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And they called them in and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, whether it is right before God to obey you rather than God, you decide. For it is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. For they could not find how to punish them on account of the people, because they were all praising God for what had happened. So this council, they say there's not much we can do about this particular sign. It's already been done, we can't deny it. But they say we have to keep it from spreading. They recognize that this hope is subversive and they don't want it to catch on among the people any more than it already has. Notice that God has not guaranteed any certain outcome here. Their collective hope, these people in the temple, their collective hope is inspired by possibility, excitement, and vision about what might be possible 
is where the spirit is at work here and what those in authority feel threatened by. The council tries to put hope on trial and they fail. Resurrecting hope is already on the move. The people are celebrating and full of praise. They've borne witness to possibility and where the divine is at work. And so instead it becomes impossible not to keep sharing this hope. So what does this story have to teach us about hope today in these uncertain times? I think the first thing is that God's spirit meets us in places of possibility. God's spirit meets us in places of possibility. The man at the gate was transformed by experiencing new possibility and he couldn't help but bear witness to it and share it with others who also became amazed and were inspired. We can't know how God is at work um, and we can't be certain about what the outcomes are gonna be, but we can take comfort in knowing that the spirit is always at work in places of more just and loving possibility. And so the second thing is resurrecting hope is an intentional relationship with possibility. I think this is key. Resurrecting hope is an intentional relationship with possibility. So hope doesn't mean denying your doubts and griefs. Um, it doesn't mean denying the present reality of the situation. It also doesn't mean having triumphant certainty about how it's all going to work out. It's more about bearing witness to the possibilities for a more just and healed world um, and trusting that that's where the spirit is at work too. Hope is more about how we relate to possibility than how we relate to certainty. I started with sharing a bit of my own faith journey um, when I started talking and shared about my own doubts and questions. And a little more about my story is that I came to seminary not knowing where it would take me but feeling very strongly that I was compelled to go. And during my second year, I tried to discern more what had brought me here and what work I was called to do. And I had this really strong sense that the call involved church planting and working with people who've had experiences similar to mine, being in ministry with people who've had experiences similar to mine, especially coming from an evangelical context. And I was excited about the spirit-inspired possibility. I was really excited, but it also felt so beyond reach. Um, I didn't know of any churches that were doing this kind of work, but I kept hope that the work had to be happening somewhere. I would say that over and over again, I would tell other people, I can't be the only one thinking this. This work has got to be happening somewhere. Um, and so people would ask me what I want to do after seminary. And I would tell them, and then I would say, and I have no idea how it's all going to work out because I don't have a denomination and I don't have any mentors who are doing similar work and I'm a woman and I'm gay, um, but I'm trying to trust that it'll all work out. I felt hopeless and naive, to be honest, a lot of the time. Um, and I really started to question myself. I started doing contingency planning um, coming up with some other potential options for when I graduate because it felt like the spirit had pointed me towards something impossible. And then I found out about Haven, this church that existed just a mile 
a mile <laughs> from my seminary and was doing the kind of work that I had been trying to imagine. And the call didn't feel so impossibly out of reach anymore. This way of thinking about hope, a hope that is less certain and much more about a relationship with possibility is not new. I'm not saying anything new today. Um, marginalized communities, because of their experiences, often have more intergenerational wisdom and spiritual traditions about this kind of hope and a collective relationship with possibility. And so for those of us who don't come from such traditions, um, this is an opportunity for us to learn and to reorient how we hold hope as we move into the future together. And so I'll close with this today. In the 1960s, people of faith in Latin America began thinking about hope in radical ways. In the midst of suffering and injustice, they began to speak boldly of God's concern for the poor. They spoke of a liberation and hope that would bring justice, and they pursued that possibility together. And one of the major theological voices in this movement is Father Gustavo Gutierrez. And he wrote this on hope. hope. He said, to hope does not mean to know the future, but rather to be open in an attitude of spiritual childhood to accepting it as a gift. But this gift is accepted in the negation of injustice, in the protest against trampled human rights, and in the struggle for peace and fellowship. Injunction is not very obvious, but it is real and it is deep. Would you pray with me? God, today, as we gather together and prepare to live into another week of COVID-19 reality, and all of the grief and uncertainty that it holds. I pray that your spirit would guide us into the places of possibility where you're already at work and you're calling us to be at work alongside you. I pray that we may be able to hold um, all the difficult emotions that are coming up with us, for us um, and for those that we love um, and are in conversation with um, but I pray that we not be consumed by those things at the same time, that we be able to hold them and lament and sit with the grief, but that we may, able to, may be able to look ahead towards possibility at the same time, knowing that those two things don't have to be in opposition to each other, trusting that you are a God of love who is loving us abundantly right now, and that you are and have always been and always will be a God of possibility. I thank you for that. And in your many names, I pray, amen.